On Extra Vision this week, my guest is the king of the creepy crawlies, Collie Ennis. Collie is a research associate in the Department of Zoology at Trinity College Dublin and the host of the Chart-Topping Critter Shed podcast. Collie came to my attention initially when I'd seen a video of him being interviewed about an incident that had happened at the Tallow Wetlands where there was a miscommunication. Essentially, the council dumped tons of soil over frogs and bats and endangered eels now this is something i wouldn't normally have much interest in but just the, the, the visual of this guy in his batman t-shirt and his bracelets looking like he's the front of a rock band as opposed to a speaker for the herpetological society of ireland so that kind of drew my attention and passion and the exuberance he had for this by the end of it i was like how do we save the frog like what do we do here? I'm a guy who doesn't know the difference between a frog and a toad, or to be honest, there is a difference between a frog and a toad, but I was curious to see if that passion that he had carried over into his interests in movies, and I'm glad to say it did. He picked three absolute belters. The, the Robert De Niro movie, The Mission, one of De Niro's most underrated films, and one of the most beautiful films you'll ever see, has that cracking uh, Ennio Marconi score as well serial killer movie seven which is one of my all-time favorites and of course he had to pick one of my worst fears arachnophobia so that was a a treat getting to rewatch that again so i thank him for that and without any further ado my guest this week Kali ennis So the first film on your list, Kali, um, no surprise, I should say, is Arachnophobia, the story of a photographer who's bitten by a spider in Venezuela, the spider then, Venezuela, who then hitches a ride back in the coffin to a small town in America and mates with a domestic spider and starts killing people in the town. Now, I always assumed, you know, oh, this will never happen. There's, you know, the, the climate or something that'll change. But then I read, I don't know if you've read this now, the first record of the non-natives false widow spider which shows that a spider actually showed up in Bray. And now the false widow is in 70 different counties in Ireland, which absolutely terrified me. So but right <laughs> off the bat, not, could I'm this actually, happen? Yeah, I'm actually involved in that study. I work with my colleagues up in, uh, in Galway uh, in, and you are up there in the Venom Lab. So we've been working on the, the Steatota Nobilis, which is the false widow spider and its invasion of the country for a number of years now. And yeah, they do get around. Spiders get around um, very well, and uh, I think that's why I, I, you know, I'm a big arachna fan. I suppose or arachnophile. Um, I love spiders. I think they're amazing, and that's why I really like it. I, I really, when I was a kid and I saw arachnophobia, it just blew me away. I just thought it was so cool and entertaining and funny, and you know, not completely scientifically correct, but yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> It's one, it's one of my, uh, like I was saying to you, it's one of those movies that if it's on the telly, I won't turn it off. I'll just watch it, whatever stage that. It's just, it's, uh, I think it's, it's great fun. You've semi-reassured me there that this couldn't happen, but I don't know. You've, you, It's kind of half and half <laughs> there. I'm slightly worried. Do, so if I come across you know, a, a mutant spider, your advice, leave him alone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, best always best to, to leave anything that looks odd alone. I mean, it's funny enough that you're looking at that spider, you can geek out the, the movie itself. Like, as a spider person, you geek out about what species they use and how they got them to behave um, and how they got them to act. 
I actually wanted to talk to you about that because I was yeah, reading the, yeah. the, the behind the scenes. They had essentially the spider Olympics. They had like wolf spiders, tarantulas, huntsmen, and how they kind of reacted to their their heat and the cold and what way they could do. And actually, one of the, the, the puppeteers on it was the few puppets that was used with Mythbusters. Uh, Jamie was on it. So I'm just yeah. curious, if you were to do your own version of arachnophobia, who do you think would make the cut in your version? I've, ha- I've had to do stuff with the BBC Natural History Unit uh, over the years, uh, pick-up shots, which basically means just, like they'll come, I have to turn my kitchen into a, a jungle setup, and you do close-up shots of spiders, and there's certain species that are great to work with and certain that are absolute nightmares, you know, and the particular species that they use for the, for the big queen in, in Verticomus, the queen spider in arachnophobia, is actually called the Goliath board eater, which is the biggest species of spider on the planet. And it's also one of those ones that it's incredibly like it's nippy and it's itchy. It will spray hairs in your face and blind you and give you a sore throat and make your skin born. And it's, it's a real nasty animal to, to, to handle. So what they did with the, the movie, they, they CO2'd it uh, to knock it out with CO2 gas that would put it to sleep for a while. And then they stuck a fake abdomen on the end of it, on its backside. So they sort of stuck a fake arse on it to make it darker bigger. <laughs> And then they painted it. They painted it up all, all these uh, kind of purples and, and, and weird colors. Um, and that's what that's the spider they used in, in in the movie. So yeah, and I so, believe it was it was right up on poor old Jeff's chest on several occasions. They were aggravated as well. So yeah, he's a brave man. They Cardassian up a spider basically. Yeah, they did. <laughs> what age were you when you first saw this? Because I just. And again, I, this is actually our first time meeting, but someone who I've, you know, I've kind of known from afar from a while. But I'm just looking at the the ophthalmologist in there, Julian Sands, and I can see a hell of a lot of uh, of you in him. <laughs> I joke with my pals who are, I'd like to be him. I like to think that I'm him, but I'm John Goodman. <laughs> I'm not John Goodman. <laughs> I mean, I'm a a very enthusiastic amateur. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah, and I'm more in common with uh, his collection of beer cans as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's very funny uh, to to kind of compare yourself to. I know a lot of people who would be very like Julian in the in the movie, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely more the, the John Goodman type character. Did you ever play the the video game for that? I had it on the the Commodore sixty four, and the only character from the film in it is John Goodman. I didn't know. I didn't know there was even a video game of it. And now I want to play it. Um, yeah, do you know what it is as well? They tried to do it. I think they, it was quite successful as a movie, and I, they've tried to kind of redo Spider movies. I remember they did Eight Legged Freak mm-hmm. and the other. And I, I think the fact that they used real spiders, real puppets, it's, it's a throwback to proper filmmaking as opposed to just relying on CGI kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I rewatched. I haven't watched it since it was on VHS as a kid, and that's. I think that's the thing that stood out for me. It's because they use practical effects. Because you know they're actually sitting there with real spiders that you know Jeff uh, Jeff Daniels, as we said, took like twenty takes, and he's like, "We have to use the one they got right. I have to do it right every time." But this you know little fucker only has to do it right once, and that's the one we use. So yeah, and I mean from working, as I said, from working with animals on film and trying to get them to behave in a certain way, like, and that's just trying to get them to behave naturally when you're doing natural history programs what they were doing to this day like getting you know hunting spiders to crawl down lamps just as the actor and it's all one pan shot like the camera comes in 
it's shot and then the spoiler shows up. It's like, how are they doing this? They must have taken take after take, but fair play, it looks great. It really does. Rewatching it, it did. There's so many things that I didn't realize. Like it's been just maybe about 10 years since I've seen this. And there's so many things that I've picked up from that film, like the popcorn with the spider and or checking the shoe before you put it on. I was like, all this comes from this film. And I kind of subconsciously retained it and didn't realize until I watched it again. It certainly hasn't done anything for I think it's the jaws of the invertebrate world, if you know what I mean. It's, uh, it hasn't done anything for human uh, arachnid relationships. I think anybody who's watched <laughs> that movie has been terrified, and most people would have seen it, especially our generation. Hmm. You know, it was one of those extra vision um, releases. I believe somebody said to me as well that in Ireland they actually covered up the spider. On the front of the box, there was a, a full moon with a spider. I was actually going to say that to you. Um, they, they took that. I was actually why we posted on the page that I was watching this for the show and someone posted a, a picture of their VHS. And it's like they took the spider off because it would, you know, if they, people thought spiders were in the film, it would terrify. Now, the film's called Arachnophobia, so I don't know what they thought they were going to trick people into. But That's it, hilarious. That is unbelievable. It had an effect on yeah. me anyway. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I suppose, look, come here, Arachnid, uh, you know, Arachnids and... and that name wouldn't have been as well known only for that movie, like the the yeah, scientific name for spiders and scorpions. And it, you know, it wouldn't have been as well not known only for that film because you know there's lots of scientific definition uh, definition for other animals out there that nobody hears them because yeah. they haven't made a hugely popular movie about you know. Yeah, uh, I was saying that like I knew Spielberg what arachnophobia was before it. <laughs> yeah, was Spielberg involved in making it? He was, he produced it and he was actually going to make it, but he was doing Cape Fear as well at the same time. So Frank Marshall, who is his producer, I know way too much about this on all the Indiana Jones. He's actually married to Kathleen Kennedy, who who is now in charge of the Star Wars universe. He'd been hovering around for a while. (laughs) Some uh, some, uh, residuals there anyway, Colleen. Yeah, yeah, we won't get into that. That's a conversation. (laughs) I was going to say, it's a different show altogether. Moving on from all things Kathleen Kennedy. Another film you picked out, I have to say, this is fantastic. I don't think it's one, the last time I've seen it, but like you said, I rented it from, you know, VHS and Extravision. And it's one of those, when you said, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I haven't, a great excuse to watch it. The Mission, that Robert De Niro, yeah. Jeremy Irons, about the uh, 18th century, the Spanish Jesuits trying to protect uh, an Indian tribe from, you know, the, the Portuguese have, um, trying to put them into slavery. And there's this kind of weird alliance with the Spanish to agree with that. I had it's just one of those ones I hadn't seen in so long. I knew I liked it, which was great, but could remember nothing about it watching it. And again, not a film you find in a lot of people's top 10. What is it about this film that made you put this on your list? Yeah, I've been, I've been going around like a Jesuit myself trying to convert people into watching this movie because <laughs> it's just phenomenally underrated as a film. I think the De Niro was fantastic in it. And he, it's not his usual role at all obviously because you know he's not suited up and, and kicking mm. the shit out of somebody in a bar he's 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 uh he's playing a very kind of you know reserved and and, and it, it, a real a role that's kind of more inward looking i suppose mm. just kind of he has this torture inside of him about certain things and he's done in his past and carries it so well and if you know you you forget that um Liam Neeson's in it too. There's, there's a great cast, a really good cast. And and I just, I think it's, 
first and foremost, it's a beautiful story. It's a tragic story, but it's a beautiful story of redemption and, you know, how cruel men can be to other men that they don't understand. It's beautifully shot. The soundtrack is spectacular. It wouldn't be the same movie without it, but it's a spectacular soundtrack. Um, and, uh, you know, just all of them together just make for just, just one of those things. I'd, I'd watch it like, I'd probably watch it once or twice a year, definitely once a year anyway. And it just, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I just think it's a work of art. And the, the backstory the to it is really Sorry, The backstory as well is mad interest. I don't think the director ever directed anything since. He had a mad experience as well because the, the tribes people that are used in it kind of all unionized and <laughs> said they weren't going to go to set. <laughs> Unless they got paid properly, a proper order to them. Yeah. But there was like all sorts of carry on going on when they were making it. And it was a difficult shoot, as far as I know, as as most things would be uh, if you're shooting in a in a rainforest. Yeah. You say there, the director didn't make any other. I've actually got a couple of films. He went from making The Killing Fields, which was an Oscar winner. He made this. Okay. Then made The Scarlet Letter, which was panned and I can tell by the blank expression on your face you haven't even heard of it yeah, Captivity yeah. with Eliza Kubert who was Jack Bauer's daughter and oh, he wow. co-directed parts of the Super Mario Brothers movie wow oh that mess yeah that's, I was, that's, that's, that's I was like how do you go from something like like you said the mission is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen and it, like any mm. frame of that you could put on your wall and I've, I've been fighting with the Snyder Cup yeah, people yeah. on Twitter now this week when they're saying this is the most amazing film beautiful film you've ever seen he goes no it's made in a computer this fucking waterfall is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen on a film yeah, to yeah, go yeah. from that to super mario brothers is you know it's some drop yeah, off a cliff quite a fall from grace maybe the maybe the jesuits put a course on him after <laughs> <laughs> the other thing it, you mentioned there was the score uh ennio marconi of course oh, didn't maybe. win the oscar uh it lost to uh round midnight by herbie hancock which was this kind of inspired or kind of inspired by jazz soundtrack which you know, I can tell by the blank expression on your face. You're like, what that, the fuck is that? That's like a, an absolute crime against humanity. I mean, like, I think my first introduction to that soundtrack that was the Aer Lingus ad in the early 90s at one stage. They had, oh, British Airways. British Airways had, a, <laughs> had, had used that uh, same music, the main, mm. uh, the main theme for a, a wonderful ad that made me want to fly away. And... and and, and that was before I'd seen the movie. Of course, then when I saw it, I was, uh, I was just enchanted. I just love it. I love everything about it. I think the, the you know, I, I would have, like a lot of us, I would have grown up in a fairly uh, Christian Catholic upbringing in, in Ireland back in the day. And, uh, you know, and then falling out of love with that very quickly, the whole thing, when you get to a certain age of the place. This is nonsense, especially with all the scandals that came out. Yeah. I think there's elements of that film, though, that show the importance. I don't get it myself, but it shows the importance of faith and um, how, how it can be used for a good, a positive force, a good force. Um, and I admire that in a way. It's not something I, I, I would do myself, but I, I like that. I like, I just like the theme of it. I like the way... It, just, it, it, it is a really moving, you know, I don't want to hark on and down, but it is a moving piece of art. It really is. It looks like a Caravaggio paint come to life. It's got a, a really fantastic story of it, you know, on, on so many levels. You can take so much from it. 
Like if you were to ask, if I was to ask you what the theme of it was, you'd be hard to put it, pin it down to one thing because you can talk about, you know, uh, moving in on, on native territories and, and abusing them. You can talk about faith and how it's important, redemption. You can talk about power and how it corrupts people and even people who want to be, you know, moral and live a good life end up having to screw other people who are less powerful over. So all these multiple layers of themes, which I don't think the Mario Brother movie had. So <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that because when I, I do the show and I'm given the list of films, I try to watch the film through the, the person I'm speaking to his eyes. And I, I did initially when I started rewatching, I was like, oh, he's probably been drawn to the fact, you know, these people being moved off their land. And then the kind of the tone, Shane, like you said, growing up kind of Catholic Ireland, that's part of it. I know you're big into your martial arts as well. You've got, you know, Robert De Niro as this, you know, the, yeah, the warrior who's yeah. put a sword down, getting dragged back that's into right, battle. Yeah, yeah. For me, yeah. the scene that really I just absolutely was blown away by is just before the, the final battle, Robert De Niro goes to Jeremy Irons and asks him, he's like, I'm basically picking the sword back up again. Will you bless me? Yeah. And any other film you'd have, like the cliche, Jeremy Irons would, you know, he'd bless him and like he'd go out to war himself. But the fact I, I respected that he had such conviction in his own beliefs yeah. that he said, yeah. I can't, I can't give you this. If might, yeah. if the sword turns out to be right, everything I've put my life into has been wrong. But then there's that lovely moment where he hands him the cross. Then as well as like, I don't believe in what you're doing, but you're my friend and I want you to yeah. you know, come back alive. Spoiler, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that scene then where he has the Eucharist and he has all the the natives who are converted to Christian and he's walking them out of the church and they're just getting decimated, blown to bits by the by the invaders. And it's just, yeah, he followed I, again. And it's like one of those things that kind of like, it stuck with me in, in life as well from watching that movie. It, it's one of those things, they didn't agree at the end. Fundamentally, they didn't agree on a, a lot of stuff. But they were still, as you said, that moment where he handed them the cross and you could see the friendship was just meant, it still meant just as much. Yeah. But they were just going to deal with the situation in their own way, which you don't see a lot of nowadays because everybody's so, uh, so you know, everything's so black and white. There's yeah. no grey area where you can kind of, you know, come to a, a similar conclusion or deal about it with different ways or or just not, not agree on a subject and still be yeah. racist. I mean, how does that happen nowadays? Like, you know, it's very difficult. Um, no, I like that. You're either yeah. all in or you're all out. All out, yeah. And I like that 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 scene. Like, I mean, like he he knew he was going to have to fight, and as you said, the, the, you know, the, the priest, the Jesuit, sticking to his guns and sticking to his moral beliefs, just admirable, regardless if you believed in it or not. Because mm. I would have been out there with the Nero throwing shape. Yeah, you know <laughs> <what I mean>? <laughs> <laughs> definitely wouldn't have been uh, wait to get shot. Another thing about this is I always just assumed this film was like a kind of unheralded classic and it was because every comment I had when I put up I was watching this was I remember watching this with my dad I remember watching it I absolutely loved it this was a massive flop and critically hasn't yeah, done great yeah. one of the we talked about De Niro there I pulled one of the, the quotes here De Niro gives a bland uninteresting performance in a very mediocre film and that was Variety yeah, I mean, one of the, the biggest at the time that, yeah that's nonsense it, i i really think you know i'm a de niro fan and i was re i remember reading his autobiography about him shoot the, the phase where he was shooting that and like the process he went through 
to go and he was still very much in the um, method acting phase mm. so he learned how to sword fight he went off and he trained mm. with you know what I mean guerrilla warfare and <laughs> kind of you know if he had had a time machine I'd say he would have gone back <laughs> being an actual slave runner but um, he immersed himself in the role and, and it is it is un, an under it's not like he's screaming and shouting or it's a very much internalized role. He's very a man who's tortured by his sins, by the horrible stuff he's done. And I do, I think, I think it's a fantastic performance by him. I really do. I think it's because um, it's coming off the back, like the, the streak. I'm just looking here. The streak he was on was Deer Hunter, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, Brazil, and then The Mission, which are all very showy roles. I think this, yeah. like you said, was a very understated role. And it's, it, it, yeah. it's like more of a Jeremy Irons film than a Robert De Niro film. Yeah. Yeah, and and Jeremy Irons is fantastic in this movie. I mean, that scene, talk about like a painting come to life. The scene where he goes in, and he starts playing the the, the oboe in the forest for the for the natives, and every priest. I mean, every scene in this, the opening mm. sequence with the priest tied to the cross going over the waterfalls. Mm. That's iconic to me. That's like just you know, he that that was what was happening to the Jesuits. They're all getting killed every time they tried to convert these tribes when he goes up and starts playing this beautiful music to them, that's how he gets his in. Hmm. Now, whether that was good for the tribes, whether it was right or wrong, that's debatable. And that's another part of this movie. It's like, they would have been better off probably being left alone. But, you know, again, it's another layer to it. It's another thing to take out. For me, it's like, every time I watch it, it's like looking at one of your favorite paints in a a museum. uh, Because, you can go back and look at a different element of it. Yeah, I can't. I can't recommend it enough. If you haven't watched it, sit down with a nice glass of wine and and, and give it a go. It is a really good film. Yeah, like you said, it's. I'm trying to convert people. It's one of these like, oh, you have to watch this again. I can't believe this isn't as big as it is. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm mad for my stats, so I had to look up how it's done that year. It was the 163rd box office movie. It was beaten oh by God. Solar Babies, a film I'm sure you've heard of. King Kong wow. Lives, a film which flops so bad it bankrupt the studio, and Troll, which was you know the first film to Troll Two, which is considered the worst film ever made. <laughs> and King Kong Lives, oh my god, I remember that. That was dire. That was. Uh, yeah, no that retreat, was, no uh, surrender was ahead of it as well. <laughs> the Van Damme wow, movie, amazing. which is a classic. <laughs> it is a classic, but it, for different reasons now. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're not gonna. You're not gonna have uh, multiple layers and, and spiritual awakenings and, and deep thoughts about no retreat. No <laughs> I, I had a few myself back in the day. To that. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, the God. Final film on your movie, list. Yeah. I have to give to you as well. This is the first two were kind of ones I hadn't seen in a while. This one I think I've watched at least probably once a month since it came out. Uh, that's mm. Seven by David Fincher with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Yeah. For me, yeah. just the absolute quintessential serial killer film. And this is one of those films that I just, they don't make anymore. And I know it's like, it's one of those cliche old people thing to say, but they really don't. Like, when was the last time you came out with something at like seven that just story, acting, yeah. just shocked by everything? Yeah, it's amazing. And it's like, it, 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 in order for to do this chat with you, I, I, I'd watched it yesterday again just because I hadn't seen it in a while. And my daughter is now of the age where she can kind of watch the older films. She, she hadn't seen it. And it's such a joy, like, uh, at the moment, because we have two teenage kids. 
that like all my classic movies, I'm getting to re-watch them with them for the first time. They're watching them for the first time, I mean, and, and her face at the end of it, just the, all the way through, it was just absorbed. And yeah, that feel, you kind of, you're reliving it through, uh, through their eyes and the, the complete shot. But for me, what I love about it, um, I'm a big comic book fan. I love comic books. And I love like uh, noir uh, comic books. I, I would, my favorite kind of superhero would have been Batman. I adore him to bits. But they did a, a, a comic book series called uh, Gotham Central a while ago. And it was basically just the cops in Gotham. And Batman would kind of float around the background. He'd appear every squad, but it was only about the cops. And I remember reading it and going, oh my God, Seven is Gotham. <laughs> Seven yeah. is Gotham. They never mentioned the name of the city. There's no badges on the police cars, the name of it. Um, but for me, it's like it's like if you were truly, and I know they've done very good realistic kind of um, Batman films over the years, which I've really enjoyed. But for me, it was as close to describing how shitty Gotham is in the comics in a movie. Like it's just a dire, drab place that's just riddled with crime. It makes Taxi Driver look like, you know, Disneyland. When, when Travis is going down the street, it's it's just it, for me. It was just the the worst elements of big city living, uh, and and the apathy that goes with it, and the, the you know the lack of community, the lack of every it, every part of that film, and then it's Fincher on top of that. That direction that everything looks dark and miserable. It's always raining, and it's it it looks again. It looks like a Caravaggio, except a really shitty kind of. Uh, a really, really bad area, you know, brought to life. It's just, yeah, I, I absolutely adore the movie. I think it's brilliant. I think the whole build-up, the pacing is really slow. You know, there's actual investigations that go on, you know, actual character development. You said they're like the two things about that make that atmosphere so good kind of happen by accident. There was uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote the film, was working in Tower Records of all places in New York. And like you said, he was speaking about that, you know, a lack of community, you know, somebody falls on the subway, they just turn the other way and no one gives a shit. And the thing with the the rain where it's constantly raining is they had Brad Pitt who was trying to you know, shake off the, the Legends of the Fall tag, but had to be back in, I think it was 30 days to start shooting 12 monkeys. And it happened to lash rain the first day on set. So Fincher for continuity had to say, I can't shoot these scenes separately so every scene has to have a rain scene in so you know it's the whole film it's raining oh. with the exception of the end of it purely just because it happened yeah. to rain on the first day and they didn't have the money or the time to keep Brad Pitt any longer that's amazing that really adds to it though and it, it was a very fortunate kind of accident that that mm. happened because it really adds the atmosphere it just makes it so drab and dull you know where he's where he's where they 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 find out where the, the John Doe is living where, where they're going mm. to kick in his door well, they're going to knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, even when they're running down the corridors and he's screaming at people to get in, it, it's so... You just think to yourself, I hate to live in a place like this. I just... Mm. It, this is awful. It's awful. Forget about the mortars that are going on. They're horrendous <laughs> as well. But the whole... The diners... The only the only joyful place you could see was the young couple, uh, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Falco, mm. who, you know, the, the cop and his wife, who had their enthusiasm and he really wanted to make a difference and she wanted to kind of, she was a teacher wanting to try and help out the big city and you could see they had a joy in their 
the house. Mm. You could see their joy was infectious and it was bringing Morgan Freeman out of his kind of introspective slump. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the only point in the movie that kind of had some kind of a, a levity to it and a kind of a, a niceness. And the rest is just mm. that dark kind of, that darkness, yeah, come right through the whole I think you're saying like the, the atmosphere I, I, I that makes you see more than you do. Because so I watched it with my my girlfriend who hadn't seen it, and at the end, I was like, "What thing was it? Oh, a bit gruesome, all the the murders and stuff like that." I was like, "Okay, which murders?" Like, oh, there is the only murder in the film is literally the the last scene in the film. There's you don't see yeah. you see the kind of the consequence yeah. of it. And again, that was like another yeah. little trick of the mind where you're like, oh, wait, no. I, I've, it's like the, the ear-cutting scene in Reservoir Dogs. You fill in the blanks yourself and make it infinitely worse than what's on screen. Yeah, something the, the stuff you don't show. And when they were describing how he did the murders, like, you know, feeding mm. the guy to death, having a guy tied to a bed for a year and keeping him alive with mm. drips and, and antibiotics. It's like, it's like, it's almost just it's so gruesome. Yeah, you see everything that comes off the back of it as well. Like the likes of Saw, obviously heavily influenced by that bone collector of Kiss the Girls. And every single one just feels like a pale imitation of that. Ironically, probably the closest thing I've seen to it is Zodiac, which was also by Fincher, which did capture that that mood. Yeah, and a fantastic film as well. Hmm. He's he's my favourite director, I think, I I would say. He hasn't... Very rarely he's made something that really pants, you know what I mean? And even Hmm. when he went to... TV, the uh, the the House of Cards. show, the American Puzzle House of Cards. Yeah, it was fantastic. All the episodes he directed, and again, like, like you're not going to be skipping down the road after watching a, a David Fincher <laughs> movie. But <laughs> saying that, you know, it, it, he's a, he's a really good director. I, I loved his uh, the guy with the dragon tattoo as well, and I mm. thought that had shades of Devin in it as well. Just the touches of it, but yeah, I. He, it's a unique and brilliant and brutal movie and I just uh, I can't get enough of it again it's one of those things it's on the telly you just get sucked into it you know and he was coming off like his this was only his second film and he's coming off the back of Alien 3 which was a massive flop yeah. a lot of studio interference yeah. in there and what saved him on that was he was kind of ostracized from Hollywood but the producer of Seven was friends with Sigourney Weaver and they were speaking about directors for this, and she said, it, None of what happened in Alien 3 is his fault. He was fantastic. And he was like, Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll give him a chance. So, Sigoni Weaver being my queen again for uh, something else. Yeah, he's brilliant. But, uh, yeah, and, and I, even I know Alien 3, like, I mean, I know it's it, it, it's not, you know, it, I tell you, it looks like a, a, the Sistine Chapel compared to the modern Alien movies, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I, I enjoyed that film. I, I think there's moments mm-hmm. in it where, and I did, I bought the box set where he kind of had, he, had, he hadn't done a director's cut of it, but he mm-hmm. did come back and, and kind of explain mm-hmm. what he wanted to do and the direction he was taking with it. Um, and it is a pity that he doesn't, they didn't just let him run because, it, you know, it would have been a very unique, uh, and, and I'd say a much more well-received version if there hadn't been interference. This was those like the wooden planet and stuff like that. That was supposed to be in his version, wasn't it? Or was that resurrection? Yeah. yeah. No, was... that was resurrection. No, we were, it was, it was, there was more about just the tone of it, the, the way the, the alien was going to be more animalistic as well, as opposed to like uh, lots of little touches that he was trying to do. And the birth of the alien was going to symbolize, 
there was a lot of symbolic stuff mm. in it as well. A lot more gruesome um, too, because I think they wanted to get it down to a 15 to get more bums on mm. seats um, as opposed to what it would have been if he had had his way, which, which mm. definitely would have been an 18. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I was just going to go a through a couple of uh, alternative casting with you for seven of a couple of people who oh, turned wow. down roles. So Detective Somerset was offered to Al Pacino, who turned it down to do City Hall, right. which I sort of regrets every day. Two other yeah. people who were offered the role of Mills, Denzel Washington, who said it was too dark and then went off to do Bone Collector and said biggest regret of his life turned down seven. And this yeah. one will blow your mind. Sylvester Stallone was offered the role of Mills. Mills? But like, how old was Sylvester Stallone have been back then? I suppose it was a while ago. Mm. He would have probably been in his 40s at that probably stage. Probably still in his 40s around that, yeah. And that was, uh, it was either Robert Duvall or Gene Hackman was going to be playing Somerset if Stallone had taken it. No way. That's a different film altogether then. I kind of like the I idea think, of Hackman think... and Stallone running around, you know, Fincher's <laughs> yeah. gothic version of New York. Yeah, but imagine, imagine like, could you see Stallone pulling off that very emotional and traumatic end and what's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? <laughs> it's, uh, I think, I think it's actually, do you know what? It, it really, uh, for me, it made Brad Pitt much more plausible as a competent mm. and, and good actor. And like he did play the, the, the cocky, uh, the cocky up and coming cop very well. Mm. Uh, and that scene, he did great at the end. It looked, like the, hmm. he looks traumatized, fantastically tense, and yeah, he did. He built himself up as like Telman Louise, Legends of the Fall, as this you know gorgeous bastard, and then spent the next twenty years tearing that image down to make himself like yeah, a, a serious yeah. actor. Fair play, fair play more like it. Another couple of alternate worlds here I want to go through, which was there was two alternate endings. One which revealed John Doe didn't murder Mills's wife; he had killed a lookalike, and that's whose head was in the box. And Mills gets sent to prison for killing an unarmed man. The oh. second one then is that John Doe kidnaps Mills and they have a shootout in the church with Morgan Freeman's character. Mills subsequently dies and Morgan Freeman's character burns down the church. It was stolen for another film, The Glimmer Man with Steven Seagal. So they saw the alternate ending of Seven and went, you know, it's grand, we'll take that. <laughs> so Mills would have born, or no, uh, Somerset would have born the first down with the with the killer in it. With I John Doe in it, yeah. Yeah, just to teach him a lesson. That is, that, yeah, I prefer the ending that they stuck with. It, it's gruesome and it's harsh, but it really, it leaves a stamp mm. on you. It really does. Mm. It, it, I remember being in school at the time when I came out and the odd lad who would have snuck into the movies yeah. to see it um, <laughs> was, uh, you know, ranting and raving about the end and the end and, Oh, you won't believe the end. And that was before people were pricked and, and spoil a movie. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, it really leaves it, it leaves a mark. Yeah, I couldn't imagine anyone else, though, uh, Morgan Freeman playing Somerset because it just has, again, it's just like, wasn't it? I think it was the making of him, too. It really made him a, a bigger star than he was. I remember, the only thing I remember him being in before was uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, is the Saracen. Yeah, I uh, can't think of anything really before then. I know he kind of was in everything. I think Shawshank was the same year or the year before. Oh, yeah. That's right. But um, 
yeah and again another one of these kind of happy accidents the version the script had been you know whittled down and changed and the version of the script was uh john doe kidnapped gwyneth paltrow but they'd sent fincher and brad pitt the wrong script by mistake the one where she died and when they went to go back yeah we love this oh no sorry you've got the wrong one the ending's actually changed and both of them said no we're not doing it on if, if you change the ending so again, um, Gobshite sent the wrong script to the director and it turned out being the making of the film. Well, there you go. There's another happy accident. That's really, really good. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad there was an incompetent intern on set there that day. <laughs> I, I will leave you with this, though. Have you ever seen the sequel to Seven? Um, no, I've heard of the, uh, somebody put something together on YouTube, wasn't it? No, it was, uh, it's a film called Solace with Anthony Hopkins and Colin Farrell, which was originally called eight which was the sequel to seven and fincher said he'd rather put cigarettes in his eyes out than direct it the film um brad pitt's character in the film is in a mental hospital morgan freeman's character has psychic powers which he just failed to mention during the first film seven and he has to chase another killer who has psychic abilities everybody said no so instead and i know you're thinking this film just never got made it did with Anthony Hopkins playing the role of Somerset and Colin Farrell is the killer and Jeffrey Dean Morgan playing Brad Pitt's role. And are they called Somerset and Mills? No. Or no. I think he's called okay, Schmummerschmet yeah. and Hills or something like that. It's like <laughs> they they, they <laughs> basically went through it with Tip X. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wish version of Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite there. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Man, I'm going to watch that film now. That'd be one for my terrible movie night. <laughs> the Mission 7 and Arachnophobia three fantastic films if you haven't seen them give them a watch or like me you haven't seen them in a while definitely watch them again Carl Yenis, great choices thanks so much for joining me today thanks for having me man pleasure to talk to you